welcome to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for late February 2018. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Star Trek Bridge Crew. Which was released specifically for VR, even though there's no reason that it needs to be VR. Although I guess that's a cool selling point. But really, it's a 3D representation of the Enterprise's bridge, right? Uh, and there's you sitting in the, you know, the Kirk chair or whatever they call it. Uh, and there are your other crew members at your different stations. And I'm not sure how it works now that it's been adapted to non-VR. But in VR, you could look at a crew member and then press one of your controllers to, to zap into his or her body. And then you're at that crew member's station. And you uh, set uh, power levels and you scan stuff and you uh, all ahead full uh, and warp drive eight engage and all that stuff. Um, and it, it's a pretty decent game, especially if you like Star Trek. One of the really cool things it does is it gives you a, a Star Trek, I guess, next generation bridge, which is all this gla- glass cockpit uh, iPhone sort of touchpad interface stuff, clearly labeled. Um, a very, very friendly interface. It makes it super easy to boldly go. But there's another version of it you can load. It's kind of like a it's like a separate mode where you play Star Trek the original series. And everything is just banks of flashing lights with no labels and some switches. Now, you can hold down a button and tooltips pop up showing you what's what. But in the heat of battle, you've got to remember... That's my uh, photon phaser uh, uh, level triggerer. That's my warp decelerator dampener. Those. Oh, that's my dilithium crystal boost kicker. You got to remember those things, Uh, and it's kind of gratifying if you learn it. I never got to that point, but I mucked around in there, Uh, and in the context of using these stations in the bridge, you're flying the Enterprise around. Uh, from within, it's very much a first-person perspective within a first-person perspective, because you're a crew member inside the ship, although it does have an outside camera. Um, but it's it's a it's a spaceship simulator, and you fly around, and every now and then you got to uh, shoot a torpedo at a Klingon, or scan a Borg thing, or something, or, or a, a st- cloak. Actually, I don't guess you cloak. Enterprise doesn't have cloaking. But at any rate, there's a bunch of cool Star Trek trappings in there. The reason it's not my game of the week occurred to me while writing the review for a game called Deep Sixed. Uh, And in just a minute, we're going to go talk to the developer of that. Uh, Deep Sixed is that same kind of thing where you're moving around the different stations of a starship. Uh, And there's no external view in Deep Sixed, by the way. You're you're only ever inside the ship looking through a first-person perspective of the person manning the ship, the the woman in this case. Uh, But Deep Sixed does something that very few games do, uh, and I can understand why. Because this thing that Deep Sixed does, and that not many other games do, can be very frustrating. And namely, that is, it fails. Uh, if you guys remember Clint Hawking's Far Cry 2 from way back when, which I thought was just a, a master class of bold game design, partly because it did things that people hated, uh, it didn't do things to pander to a wide audience, to its credit. I mean, it, uh, a lot of 
auteurs or a lot of people who are visionaries aren't necessarily popular. Uh, and Clint Hawking's uh, interpretation of a Far Cry game, uh, a lot of people didn't like for various reasons. And I think one of the reasons might have been that was a game where you could shoot your gun and it could uh, misfire. Now, it didn't happen often, and I think, in fact, it happened so rarely that people who complained about it were complaining about it more in theory than in practice. Uh, but in theory and in practice, I like this idea that a gun is not a 100% reliable tool. I like this idea of building into the gameplay uh, failure rates. You know, sometimes you've got to uh, – and that's kind of what that – what's it called in, in Gears of War, that quick reloading bar – uh, I think there's a word for it, whatever. They probably patented that. But that reloading bar is, in a sense, uh, it's not really a built-in failure, but it's a built-in bonus. And if you miss the bonus, you failed. And it kind of represents a fumbled reload, right? Uh, but too few games uh, have this idea of actually preventing you from shooting because, some, because of a misfire or a round gets jammed. This is where Deep Sixth comes into play, because in Deep Sixth, you are flying a deeply, deeply unreliable spaceship. Uh, and the game design is built around that unreliability and the crisis management that ensues. Uh, so let's go talk to the guy who made it. Uh, his name is Ryan uh, Hewer, and he is from a, a developer called Little Red Dog Games. Their previous titles... Uh, actually, the only one on Steam is a game called Rogue State, which is a geopolitical simulator, which is kind of, you know, you're massaging a spreadsheet. Uh, but uh, let's go talk to Ryan about Deep Six, uh, and then I'll be back afterwards. Here we go. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer to. I'm half crazy, all for the love of you. Uh, Ryan. I would like to know a little bit about Little Red Dog Games. Uh, tell me who you guys are uh, and how you came to make Deep Sixed. Okay. Uh, well, Little Red Dog Games really got its start back in probably 2013 with our uh, our first title, which was a charity fundraiser. Um, it was a, a game called Conspirocracy, and it was a relatively amateurish um, point-and-click adventure game with the purpose of raising money for a Canadian charity uh, called the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Um, we learned a whole lot making that, and we had a really good time with that. And so we kind of formed a core group of people, myself, uh, my wife, Crystal, um, and uh, Dennis, who worked as a, a music director for that project. And we thought, you know, what could we do if we actually sought to make a commercial grade uh, product. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, two years later, we published Rogue State, and Rogue State was a um, it was a very very unique combination of point and click and uh, and strategic um, mechanics. It was a Middle Eastern dictatorship simulator, and uh, it was you play the role of a of a despot who is trying to keep his country together as it's kind of collapsing internally and you're being pulled in different directions by different ideologies. And you basically just have to keep yourself in power for five years, um, staving off threats to your, your interim leadership. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that game did better than we ever thought it would. Um, especially considering that we are self-taught programmers and, uh, 
and invested very little money into production and we're just kind of figuring things out as we went uh so from there we thought all right well let's let's go a little further um we grew our team considerably uh, there were 11 people in all that had some role in uh, Deep Sixed, and they're all considered to be part of the Little Red Dog Games family. Um, and most of us all uh, are either working part-time or full-time. Um, my partner, uh, Dennis, uh, worked on it full-time. Um, I work on it part-time, as does my wife, as does a, most of the people on the team, holding on second jobs and doing whatever we can along the way to, to help make ends meet. Um, Deep Sixth was uh, a very different style of game. We wanted to experiment now with building a game that was a bit broader in scope, um, pushed our mechanics, pushed our skills a little bit more. We wanted to focus on doing a combination of 2D and 3D um and uh and just scale things up a lot we we built ourselves a budget we put a little bit more into it and yeah that's I'm, I'm mainly curious about how do you go from making rogue state uh, mm-hmm. which is a kind of a geopolitical simulator type yeah. uh like there's a sense of social consciousness to it you kind of want to portray the plight of a third world country with a superpower having to negotiate superpowers and internal strife uh, domestic politics, all of that. Like, there's a sense of a, a real-world concerns going into gameplay with, with Rogue State. And I get a sense like, okay, I know what, what those guys are like. Uh, they they have this sort of global awareness, and they're wanting to build it into a, a video game. How do you go from that to, uh, I guess I would say, the whimsy of, and, and certainly the, the, the sci-fi elements of Deep Sixed? I think that the, the games have a fair bit in common, actually, I, I wanted to take a step away from Rogue State and not be a one-trick pony. I wanted to do something that felt very different, and I want all of our games to feel very, very different from each other. Um, but it's funny how some old habits die hard. All three games, Deep Six, Rogue State, and Conspirocracy, touch on contemporary social issues. With uh, Rogue State, it's balancing the needs of... Uh, a conservative religious and a, a liberal freedom-seeking diasporas. Um, with conspirocracy, it's uh, dealing with um, uh, bureaucracy in this in this day and age, and dealing with uh, the healthcare issues and and a number of other little threads. Um, with Deep Sixth, we have little hints of contemporary problems when it comes to um, incarceration and the commodification of of incarceration and whimsy again like we we the last two games were all about real places real people real world type issues but they're also ridiculous in their own way um conspirocracy is a game where you are matching wits against a a robot medical assistant um rogue state one of the characters is is a despotic chicken (laughs) Um, and, and, and it's just kind of played straight in the game where in, in rogue state, you'll be just, um, doing regular old kind of things that you would expect to see in a geopolitical, political Middle Eastern game. And then suddenly you'll get a visit from the embassy of Chikanistan and emperor Rusty will show up and you'll have to just deal with that. And, you know, the audience just 
you, it always gets a chuckle out of people because you just don't see it coming. And Deep Six is very much the same way. And like we like to surprise people by not taking ourselves too seriously. I don't think we're ever going to make a game that is um, that is so serious um, that we can't take a step back and, right. and laugh at our own our own dialogue and our own choices and our own situations. It's just how I write. Uh, so I, I I can tell from uh, Rogue State and what you've mentioned about cons bureaucracy that you guys are folks who have worked with uh, government and healthcare and that sort of thing. Uh, oh, real quick, uh, Ryan, you mentioned that you did cons bureaucracy for a charity. Uh, what was that charity again, and why did you uh, why were you uh, contributing to that specific charity? Out of curiosity, uh, that charity was a Toronto-based charity, uh, Toronto, Canada, uh, and it's called the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Uh, that charity was chosen at the request of one of the voice actors for Conspiracy. I knew we wanted to make a charity game because I wanted to make sure that if this was going to be my first game ever, I didn't want to make any profit off of it because I wanted uh, I wanted people to, if they wanted to invest a penny into it, it was because they believed in the charity rather than they believed in my skills because I didn't believe <laughs> in my own skills at that point in time. And so I had a giant, you know, I could wave off any problems and saying, I'm doing my best. I'm learning as I go. I'm so sorry if there's a bug that that went unaddressed. Um, thankfully, the game is it was not half bad and it was very, very um, generously received. I think all things considered, considering it was my first game. Um, and yeah, one of our voice actors uh, was friends with another a uh, well-regarded voice actor who had a degenerative uh, visual condition. And uh, he requested very passionately that uh, we support this charity. And we had no reason to say no. It sounded like a sure. great idea. Sure. Um, with, uh, uh, with our experience, yeah, I mean, I've, uh, before um, going into game development, I've got a decade of experience with the government of Canada uh, working as a, a diplomat. And uh, working as a uh, nuclear weapons inspector before that. Well, this uh, amongst all those other credentials, are you guys science fiction nerds? Of course, of course. <laughs> Tell I mean, me about I, your specific. I mean, this is kind of a softball question, and but I, I look forward to hearing it from you. Tell me about your specific inspirations for uh, Deep Six. What what uh, what parts of your science fiction nerdry background went into Deep Space uh, Deep Six? All right. Well, I mean, the obvious influences. Um, I we we threw in our Star Trek, and we we threw in our 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 you know the the Star Trek, Star Wars kind of stuff to begin with. But for me, I mean, I'm I've always been into Dune. Um, I've always been into uh, you know Babylon Five. I've been into Blade Runner. I mean, I I love this kind of stuff. Um, and so when I got locked, I locked myself into a room with uh, Philip Vukovic from Toronto and he's uh, another one of the writers and you know, no one's really allowed to leave the room until we had the complete script for deep six penned out. And, you know, you put us together for long enough and eventually we just start talking in quotes from science fiction <laughs> properties. And so you'll see that manifest be like, Oh, well, I haven't seen, you know, I, I haven't seen an AI like that since the uprising at the Tannhauser Gate. You know, it's like sea bees glittering the darkness and all of this kind of throwaway lines that are references to Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. um, we put little Easter eggs throughout the game that are um, hints of I, I actually don't even want to give them away because I like players sure. to discover yeah. these on their own. But um, there's a lot of science fiction properties that we've put little winks and nudges to along the way, and you'll be far hard pressed to identify them all. 
And that's part of the fun. Um, 2001 comes up a lot as well. We get some monolith references. Um, we got the 2010 reference. We've got uh, uh, also even like the core plot of the story. I mean, I don't think this is going to give too, too much away. But the the major storyline of the relationship between the player character and the AI is based on um, uh, Kay's uh, Flowers for Algernon. Whoa. Yeah. yeah, well, now that you mentioned that, sure, of course, I see exactly uh, how this that works. itself a, a seminal science fiction piece. In fact, one of the things we wanted to do was reimagine Flowers for Algernon in a futuristic setting um, and what that would look like. I mean, distill it and water it down for a video game, but that was kind of the starting point for the, the story. Okay, well, I'll I have questions about that when we get into the spoiler bits uh, later. Uh, but one of the things that I... I you know, you mentioned like the the Star Trek uh, that you guys were into Star Trek. One of the things that I really appreciate about Deep Sixth is it, it's kind of an anti Star Trek f- for me a, as a player, as far as the core gameplay, the experience, what it feels like. Because I think of Star Trek as uh, these these super skilled science officers in skin tight outfits, and they're pressing buttons on this gleaming clean bridge. <laughs> the giant window in front of it, and there's all these trained officers at hand. And Deep Sixth, to me, is much more of an expression of space as a place inhabited by uh, working-class people having to roll up their sleeves and put duct tape on something. And I think of movies like like Dark Star or uh, Apollo 13 as a real-world you know what? This is this is more Firefly than Star Trek. You know, I've never seen Firefly, and this I, – this, okay, so that – you know, you're just is, making me want to watch Star Yeah. Yeah, you should. You should. Because it's it's the greatest thing ever made. Um, and uh, yeah, like this is Cowboys in Space. And yeah, yeah I, th- I think Apollo 13 is a great reference. In fact, when it comes to whipping out the duct tape and finding a duct tape solution, um, I mean, when, when we wrote that in, you know, we're thinking Apollo 13, we're thinking of uh, Mission to Mars, um, we're thinking of like low tech solutions to to problems um i i like the character archetype of the the grisly unhappy cussing under your breath why am i in this kind of mess um uh character the this is in a world where characters swear characters talk to themselves characters are grumpy characters are unhappy it's not slick it's not shiny and it's not like press button to solve situation and but, it's a, go ahead. Sorry. No, it's okay. And and it's a game that's very intentionally designed around, if I may say so. Uh, and I'd like to hear you kind of explain this. It's very intentionally designed around a bad interface. W- would you agree with that? Would you take any yes. issue with someone characterizing it that way? No, not at all. In fact, that's that's the point. Is um, uh, I think the the inception for this game really starts with uh, us playing uh, a board game. This is uh, Vlada. Shvatels, and again, apologies if I've butchered that name. I think it's Polish or Czech or something. I think he's, he's Czech, and I believe that's how I've always said it as well, Vlada Chivatel, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his game, Space Alert, and that is a game where multiple players uh, all are taking on different roles on a spaceship that is falling apart uh, in, in sort of a, a real-time aspect. And people have to coordinate with each other to address problems as they're they're coming up. 
And usually in that coordination, signals get crossed, people get things wrong, people forget things, things slip, and chaos kind of ensues. And I think that really is something that we wanted to bring to a video game. We wanted to bring this idea of your one person having to deal with all these multiple issues and hammer them out and things get lost and confused and broken over time. Now, you you mentioned uh, playing board games. Uh, Mm -hmm. Here's one of the things that I wonder. I wonder about the appeal of this game for for various people because what I loved about Deep Sixed, um, this is a a weird – idiosyncrasy of mine i love reading board game rules because a board game is a set of systems that are connected together in interesting ways to create a narrative or or a challenge or a puzzle uh and i just love reading the rules to see how they fit together uh deep sixth kind of reminded me of that in that here i am on the spaceship and i don't really know how things work and they're certainly not very streamlined and you guys give me a manual, and I personally love having to look up, oh, where was that bit about what happens when the spaceship is spinning? Oh, where's that list of error codes on the scanner? Uh, oh, where's the thing that explains the colors for the laser alignment? I love reading manuals, but that's a weird thing that I have, and I'm not sure other people have that. Uh, isn't that it, it, is it a weird – you guys have made a game where, where – Reading the manual is part of the gameplay, and manuals are really out of fashion these days. People want an interactive tutorial. Yes. Uh, was that that well? That was risky, right? Yeah, absolutely. And again, the people that are playing the game are loving it, and the people that look and realize that there's a lot of reading and a lot of manuals involved and a lot of of instructions. Um, the people that would turn their back on a, a giant Lego set. Um, they're they're not as interested in in a game like this, and that's perfectly okay too. I mean, we don't hide what the game is. Um, a lot of comparisons have been made, and I want, I want to break down two things here. We've got a physical manual with this game, and we've got an in-game manual. Mm-hmm. So, just talking about the in-game manual, um, we've had a lot of comparisons made to Papers Please, and I was really confused at first, saying, you know, why are people con- confusing Deep Six with Papers Please? Why is why is that comparison being made? Because one is a is a science fiction game that's you know done in in real time, and one is a, a minimalist border simulator. But then it just kind of clicked. Oh, of course. I mean, they're both about following detailed instructions um, mm. with a limited amount of time and guidance, and then applying those instructions in a high pressure setting. And once you realize that, it's like, oh my gosh, yeah, you're right. These games definitely are in the exact same kind of category. Um, and I love it. I, I loved Papers, Please. So when that comparison was being made, FTL meets Papers, Please, or uh, um, FTL meets Space Alerts, uh, I, I couldn't have been more happy. That's great company to be sharing, for sure. Um, the aspect of a physical manual was almost a, it was a last-minute edition. And it was one of those things that was done at great protest with others from the team. Um, why are you wasting your time with this? Why are you pushing for this? People don't want physical manuals. And for me, it was two things. One, uh, I knew that having a manual in-game, while you can check it uh, between missions in at your comfort and leisure at the space base, 
you're not going to be doing that, or a lot of players aren't going to be doing that. They're going to be checking it when they need it, and then they're going to be frustrated because they don't have enough time to look at all of the little bits and pieces of information that are buried in those manuals. For that kind of person, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we gave them a physical manual so that when they're not playing the game and they're on the train, on the bus, uh, they're, they're sitting around, they just want someone to read something in their hands, they can actually look at a physical version of the same manual. And what if we made it nice and thick and well-written so that it feels like an authentic field manual to a spaceship? It, it feels like a backer reward without having to be a backer. Ah, sure. And now you, you say players might not uh, use it during gameplay. I had that thing on my iPad while I was playing. Like, I would, I would, I would have... I would have it open as a PDF and flip over like to the error codes and stuff like that was and have that sitting next to me. Uh, so no, I definitely appreciated that in game. Yeah, and I can yeah. see how that would turn some people off. Be like, wait, I need two devices, or wait, <laughs> to, like draw my attention between two different things. And it just depends on the kind of player you are and what your commitment is to a game like this. But uh, the other thing is the manual had a spillover benefit, and that was. Uh, it made for fantastic couch co-op. You, uh, somebody oh. who looks at the game and says, ah, oh, that looks pretty stressful. And I don't know if that's for me. You give them a copy of the manual and you can call out error codes and they're whipping through it. And sure. Oh, okay. Do this, do that, do this. And we've seen some fantastic playthroughs of people doing a, a couch co-op of deep six and having a great time. And all the mechanics in keep talking and nobody explodes, which right. is a game that really thrives on two player couch co-op with one person operating the game and the other person operating a book manifests just as well in deep sixth so that was i'm really glad we did the physical manual and when i hear the feedback from people saying the physical manual really sells this for us i know that was worth it and i'm really happy about that right right uh now i one of the things too that i like about the physical manual uh there's something uniquely and this word gets thrown around a lot, but I, I feel in this case it, it's merited. There's something uniquely immersive about playing a game that's about using controls. You know, playing a game that's about computer systems, playing a game where I click the mouse to push a button, like it feels super tactile, where I have to move from one chair to another. Yeah. Uh, and when I have that manual on a PDF, that's like a scene in like Apollo 13 where they roll out the blueprints. You know, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm in real, the world, real world looking at this, and then I'm back on my screen clicking on buttons, and then on my screen I'm opening up the manual there and the little interactive parts to look at different pictures and diagrams. Uh, it, it makes me uh, – like you guys do a very – specific job a very meticulous job of making the player feel like they are in the shoes in the chair of the woman in the game uh because when i'm clicking a button there's no hand like i never see her hand come out on the screen and press the button it's always my finger albeit through a mouse cursor pressing the shield button or my finger you know, dragging the wrench to bang on the battery. Uh, there's a super tactile sense to, to me doing these things and being in this situation uh, that I just, you know, immersive is, is, I can't think of a better word for it. Um, and it's one of those things, one of the, uh, the features that we really um, highlight in this game is this, is this is life without an undo button. If you don't do it, it's not going to get done. Mm -hmm. So people will say, oh, you should have it so that when you re when the new mission starts, uh, you should reset this value and reset that value <laughs> as much as possible. We have safeguarded 
everything in the ship as where you left it. Uh, and I think that's really, really part of the fun of this game is you see players who will just get out of a scrape and they'll say, okay, before I go home, I should clean up my ship. <laughs> you know, I should put things away where they need to be. I should tape up these cracks I've left open. I should take this, this clutch that I put in place and put in the proper part and install it the right way before, you know, I don't get the chance and it comes back to haunt me. Um, we have bits of spaceship maintenance that uh, characters can do. So, you know, you know that if you have a moment of downtime, you should be polishing your power nodes. You should be making sure that your lasers are properly calibrated because you don't want them to fail in a clinch. And for people that are inherently lazy people, they get to be inherently lazy and they get to experience the consequences <laughs> of that. And then they get to say, why did that happen? This game is unfair. No, wait, I'm lazy. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Um, and for people that are just very fastidious, meticulous people, they get to be as fastidious as they want in this spaceship. And the game rewards that by making your life a lot easier down the line. The very first thing I do in a playthrough is go through and move all of the inventory items to the scanner room. Everything that I need goes to the scanner room, uh, and later as I get overflow, I make sure that it's downstairs in the, I guess, the what is that, the hyperdrive room. Uh, yeah. Like, I need all of my stuff there. I can't, and I learned that the hard way, where I'm playing, and I'm like, where's that universal board? You know, I need it qu quickly, and I forgot where I put it. Uh, so there's a, there's a sense of, as soon as I set out, I arrange the spaceship the way that I need it, with all the stuff in it. Uh, and that's another part of it being immersive, too, is you go through, and you, you set up the ship for your voyage uh and the same thing too when you go home you do a walkthrough around the ship you know press each of the number keys in succession to represent like walking through all the rooms making sure everything's in order and you didn't miss any cracked windows or anything uh yeah and i also love ryan and i imagine you might get some comments about this when i go back to base base is not a place where I can just take my time and go through and realign and do all the adjustments. Nope. And, and the prison conceit makes sense. Like, I get locked out of the ship when I'm not doing a mission. I'm not allowed. And, and Astra Interstellar Solutions, that, you know, they, they, I guess it's just inefficient, but they're not going to let me mess around with the ship when I'm not doing a mission. Uh, and if this had been just a matter of, hey, this is me and my ship, then sure, when I get home in the safety of the base where nothing can go wrong and I've got infinite time, I should be able to fix and adjust everything. But because I'm a prisoner, because this is a corporate dystopia, uh, as soon as I go back to the base, I'm locked out of the ship. I love that conceit. Yeah, it, it is a conceit, and we've taken some liberties with it narratively along the way. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll admit to not being completely consistent with that conceit, but um, for the most part, that is kind of how we hand wave the idea that between missions you don't get that fresh start it's it's how you left it it's not how you wished it would be right um i think that this is a game not for people that want to be pilots it's for people that want to be engineers it's for people that like to mm. fix things tinker with things see how things work i mean the original vision for deep six was to make sure every single panel every button every light <laughs> every surface in every single room of the ship could be interacted with in some capacity. Now, we scaled that back a lot because the feedback we were getting was it was too much. It was overwhelming. Um, so believe it or not, this is, in fact, the scaled back version. Um, but uh, the, the whole intention is this is not a game about being um, a captain that makes 
difficult decisions. This is a game about being uh, an engineer that has to figure out what problems are worth solving, what problems can be put off, and what problems deserve the right solution, and what problems should should make do with a sloppy solution. Right. Now, uh, you, you mentioned before the FTL comparisons, which are yep. inevitable. Uh, there are um, – let, let me just put it this way, Ryan. Is this game a roguelike or a, a, a narrative? Uh, oh, gosh. Um, we call it a roguelike. We do. Um, every There is a core narrative. There is a core story. The core story is consistent. Uh, the core story will be experienced not by everybody. I don't think everyone's going to get there. Um, but everyone's gameplay experience, when I hear what your stories are playing Deep Sixed, they're all very different. You know, we have people saying, wow, my early runs were incredibly easy because creatures had certain vulnerabilities. I had certain starting setups, these missions, certain things happened. Other people will go through very similar circumstances and get a very profoundly different experience. Well, one of the first things you realize is when a creature is resistant to the kind of damage that you're dealing and you have to improvise on the fly, figuring out, okay, well, what am I going to do to to address that? Um, when you look at mission selection and the missions require you to be collecting certain gases and, and producing certain compounds, um, how you approach that will very much depend on how much scanning you did. I think players, uh, the fact that players right now are also currently arguing over what the key unlock path is has shown that we've done a really good job at making multiple means of, uh, of success possible. I, I think we can safely call it a roguelite. Now, uh, you, you offer what, what are called an easy and a normal mode. Yep. Uh, I imagine I'm probably not alone in that when I booted up the game, because I enjoy a challenge, uh, I jumped right into normal mode. And I even streamed this and got a little bit lost. Uh, and I eventually realized, you know, learning these systems during the normal mode where crises are more dire, they're piling up more quickly, it's more punishing. Uh, it, it's, it was just frustrating me. And I wanted to like this game. And I think it might have even been you or someone from Little Red Dog Games in the in the stream basically explained, well, you should maybe consider playing on easy mode, or, or someone said that. And so I did. I dropped it down to easy. I played through the story. Uh, I got to enjoy the narrative you guys were telling. And now I'm playing on what you're calling normal, and it, it feels more like a roguelike now where yeah. I'm challenging myself, and it is more difficult. So I kind of feel like uh, – and it's a semantic thing, but I'm a little worried that nobody will – that people will skip the easy mode uh, and and not get to fully experience the longer-term challenge and narrative of the game. That must have been a concern of you guys' as well. So here's, uh, here's how I predict the average player progression path mm -hmm. goes. Everyone starts in normal mode. Absolutely everyone. No, I, I don't think I've ever met a single person who was given <laughs> a choice between normal and easy mode. Ever take the easy mode first. Uh -huh. So we go into it assuming people are going to go for normal mode because we do call it the definitive experience. And after a few missions, they will probably die. And there's two kinds of people. Um, they'll either say, oh, that was hard, and then they'll quit. But more likely, the person's going to say, all right. Let's go to easy mode and see if it's any different. And that's where the hand-holding happens. That's where we, we ease things back a little bit. Um, 
and then they do exactly what you've done. Okay, and then they're ready to come back to normal mode because this is a game that thrives on actual learning, not escalating the difficulty, but on learning, coming back to the exact same problem in the exact same way with new knowledge and skills that you've gained, Mm -hmm. not new unlocks, not new perks, but skills and knowledge, things that are intangible. Um, and that was actually a huge gameplay argument. I, For oh. a while, we were talking about whether or not we would let you the game get easier for you the longer you played it. We'd give you persistent unlocks. And these persistent unlocks would um, would basically mean, you know, after... You know, uh, I mean, we could do it the way you know, Everspace does it, where you can use sure. up your, your excess credits... Well, you and, guys did that in, in Rogue State, like even. Yeah, I think didn't Rogue we, State we had persistent Rogue State. Yeah. You, yeah, and and we were considering doing that. In fact, I believe I was uh, pushing for that. I thought that was okay. something that fans would want, and it would also help keep in the people that were finding the game to be too hard. I was talked out of it, and I'm glad I was talked out of it because the um, the underlying philosophy of this game is this is a game that rewards you for learning, not rewards you for playing. And when you actually accomplish something because you've learned the systems, it is so much more rewarding than in Dark Souls having accomplished something because you happen to play the game for 20 hours. Right. right. So we wanted our playtime to feel like you were actually authentically gaining the experience without us having a little progress bar at the bottom that said experience gained. <laughs> right. Um, if that if that makes sense. So uh, I'm glad that we didn't do that. And. I think that while that means that some people will get frustrated and some people may get frustrated and quit, that's okay. We're okay with that. I think most people will scale back, see what they're missing, and then come back to it just as you have. Uh, well, I kind of want to push back against that decision a little bit, and I'm curious how you, sure. you would respond to this because I, I feel that um, – uh, what, one of the a fundamental tenet of roguelikes uh, is permadeath, of course, to raise the stakes. Uh, yep. And you know, you guys have that. And I, I believe actually there was permadeath when it came out in easy mode too, yep. wasn't there? Yeah. Still but was, uh, yes. And you guys and I completely understand this. You backed off of that on, on the easy mode, and now you can reload when you die. Um, but permadeath is still a fundamental part of the experience in, in normal mode, which you call the definitive deep six experience. Uh, and I feel that that's a tenant that roguelikes uh, are, are built on in the sense of greater stakes. The player has more investment in the gameplay. Uh, to offset the the inherent frustration in dying and losing all your progress, a lot of roguelikes have some sort of persistent progression between gameplay sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when I'm playing in the difficult mode and I die, excuse me, normal mode, and I die, I have nothing to show for it. All of that time, and now granted, this is a game where presumably I've learned more, but sometimes when I die in normal mode, it's not because I didn't know something. It's because maybe I couldn't do something in time, or there were two events that happened that created these cascading failures at the wrong time together. Um, I I feel like a a roguelike needs something to offset the inherent frustration of permadeath. And I don't think there's anything like that in the normal mode in uh, Deep Sixed. In the normal mode, no, I suppose not. Um, if you, if we refuse to um, quantify the any knowledge gained or any practice received or any understanding as to what challenges will be coming up along the, the line, um, then then no, uh, it is a game that. Um, 
is fully capable and ready to kill you and give you <laughs> nothing left. It will take your lunch money and it will uh, it will leave nothing behind. Yeah, it um, beat me up behind that, the gym that, after school. It, it was will, rude. It will. And, and until you learn to toughen up and and defend yourself <laughs> against this bully of a game, it's going to keep coming at you again and again and again. Um, if that makes me a, a jerk of a developer, I, I'll accept that. But I'll tell you what, this game um, feels all the more rewarding now when you do, in fact, stand up against that bully. Right. I, uh, I do love that you as a developer basically, basically told me to suck it up. I wish more developers <laughs> would do that. So fair enough, Ryan. Although let me offer something that uh, uh, I think would help or, or would, would mollify people like me. Part of my problem with dying in normal mode and having nothing to show for it isn't necessarily that I want gameplay changes or perks or unlocks. I just want recognition. Yeah. And if you were to give me, Ryan, a score – and maintain that score somewhere. Maybe use the idea of Astra Interstellar Solutions stock price as yes. my score for that run through. If you were to simply recognize and store somewhere, even locally in a little file, my accomplishment, I would shut up and I would just play oh and be gosh. a completely okay, well, happy camper. Well, first off, okay, that I think is a fantastic idea. And you're probably going to see something like that in a future update. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm totally on board with that. And I've, I think that we also have something similar to that already in play, and that is the notepad in the hyperdrive room. Now I've no, yeah, okay, so yeah, tell, well, I, I do want to. So I've played through the story once on easy mode, and I've, I've yep. seen the, the overall narrative, and then I have some questions. But I think some of these things will be spoilers. So yes. uh, real quick, what would you say about the notepad for people who worry that they're not going to get a high score or get unlocks without spoiling anything? So the notepad, when you when you click on it. Um, we've kind of borrowed a conceit from Dungeon of the Endless, which, by the way, is another game that will constantly kick your butt and give you nothing mm -hmm. um, for your effort. And in in that game, you've got to basically, when you accomplish something that is interesting, something that is noteworthy, um, a number of creatures killed, um, a certain uh, plot point resolved, uh, whatever it is, a little sketch will appear in the deep sixth notepad mm -hmm. and basically it's to show the pilot's descent into madness uh the, the pilot has a lot of time to kill and the pilot doodles in the notepad and so these these little doodles they all represent different things and you're not necessarily even going to know what it is you've accomplished you're just going to know that something has been rewarded you've been rewarded with this image and the doodles are they're all pretty silly and they're all pretty themed with whatever it is that you've done so players can guess what they're supposed to mean uh and there's like 25 i think it's close to 30 doodles in all oh. to be found so there's lots and lots and lots of them uh now, they're, they're not persistent between sessions though it's just within any given gameplay session you'll unlock over the course of the game different pictures in the notepad no they're they're persistent between sessions whoa well that okay yeah, I, I'm super happy to hear that. I still want a high score, though, Ryan. I yeah, no, want... I, I get you. I'm not backing out of the high score thing. In fact, I'm going to write down right here some sort of high score slash, you know, <laughs> reward. Uh, system. Because here's like I, I, I think there are a lot of uh, 
I, I don't want to say red herrings because some of them are world building, uh, but there are a lot of elements in this game that I think go nowhere gameplay wise. And one of the elements that I was wondering about when I play and I did poorly, I wouldn't get the little message about a stock value. And if I did well, yeah. I would get another message. I was like, oh, that's going to be my score. That's going to give me certificates or uh so, so there, there's some red herrings in there that... Yeah, that, it's mm-hmm. kind of a red herring. The stock price has a purpose, and it's a factor in unlocking a secret mission. Uh, but it's, it's one of those things that, you know, the stock price and a few other elements need to be aligned a certain way. Okay. And if it all goes your way, then you can do what is... Well, you'll, you'll see. You'll okay. know what okay. happens. But you're uh, right. for the most part, the stock um, price is just a conceit to say, hey, good job. The thing is green or uh, you got to try again. The thing is red. Right. Right. Uh, well, the uh, before we get into spoiler stuff, I want to yeah. talk a little bit. Uh, I want to uh, bring up something else. Uh, I, I love the the sense of a physical space that you create with the spaceship, with this idea of a ring with the five stations. In the middle is a three-story kind of a, a hub um, or an axle, what, what have you, yeah. uh, with the scanners on top. Um, I, I'm a little bummed that you do a great job creating this physical space in the hub where I can click on a ladder to go up and down between the scanner, the, uh, the hyperdrive, and the reactor room. All that's gone in the hub. Like, why yeah. can't I click around to go from the hub to the ring and to go from different ring stations to another? Because I get in a super awesome groove, Ryan, where I'm just leaning back, using my mouse, and that represents my finger. And, you know, I could drag down and click on the map, but I'm so used to the hotkeys. But if I had a way to just click on a door to the next ring room, uh, I, I just would love if that idea of a physical space were more unified in the ring and between the ring and the hub. So, uh, fully agree. I think that having uh, a mouse switch between viewing rooms, where that makes sense to me. The big issue was how do we get from the viewing rooms to the the hub in the middle, the uh, the the spoke, and the way that it was done in the spaceship. And the spaceship we actually modeled uh, with paper. Um, in like you can see some of the old uh, the old. Uh, like everything in the the game we physically crafted so most of the creatures were modeled in clay um most of the parts of the spaceship were all built and photographed extensively in paper um so when we were kind of building the layout of the spaceship we needed to find a connection that connected those viewing rooms to the the central core of the spacecraft and we couldn't find room to really fit a door in a way that was logical. And we tried moving things around and it didn't really work out. And in the end, we kind of just said, you know what? It's really not that big of a deal. <laughs> I think, uh, I think we'll just let it go. And I kind of regret that. I mean, I I'm allowed to say that now. Um, I looking back on it, I think we should have fought more for that door that connects you to the viewing rooms just to really hit home the unified feel of the spaceship. Because yeah, I agree, a physical, a physical feel, a space, a feeling of a physical space. Yeah. When I got to get from viewing room one to viewing room four, I press the keyboard button to move to that room. I always do. But whenever I have to move from the scanning room to the hyperdrive room, you know I'm clicking on right the right. 
clicking on the part of the screen that takes you there. And that feeling of going down the ladder, the sound of going down the ladder, is just weirdly rewarding in its own way. So, yeah, it's, and I think that's a regret, and that's okay. And I do understand the challenges. Like, first of all, that, that would take artwork, I guess, in a way. You, I mean, I guess you could just slap a random hotspot on the screen. But, yes, you but. know, if you look at the, the hub with the ladder and the, the door that closes when you're depressurizing, I mean, there's artwork that goes into aligning the physical space there that you would it's not there in the ring because you know you guys had other priorities yeah Uh, so um uh and i also i noticed um if i so i died many times trying to put out fires with a fire extinguisher and i was sitting there like clicking the fire extinguisher clicking the fire and i finally thought well maybe i should read the manual about how to put out fires maybe i'm not using the fire extinguisher correctly because i thought of all the things that can go wrong on the spaceship I know how to put out a fire. I've got a fire extinguisher. I just scored on the fire. And it wasn't until I decided, well, let me check the manual. Maybe I'm supposed to do something to the fire extinguisher to make it work. And the manual explained, you know, you can depressurize a compartment, dummy. Like that was my subtext. <laughs> and, and I eventually figured out and now fires are trivially easy to deal with. Yeah. Um, but I also notice, and this has got to be a challenge for you guys, if there is a fire in, say, the uh, hyperdrive room and I'm in the scanner room, I can still cheat and get down to the reactor room. Like I can bypass a sealed area of the ship and magically teleport around. Yes. Uh, which gameplay wise, I understand why you do that. But when I noticed I could do that, I was like, aha, I am teleporting around. Yeah. And, uh, and this is a thing. Um, one of the, it's funny enough is it never used to be that way. In one of the earlier iterations of the game, it definitely cut off movement. Um, and it prevented that teleporting. The problem was is that yeah. it was becoming unclear why you weren't able to teleport. And to have you say, hey, you can't jump from room A to room B because room C is on fire, but you're not aware it's on fire. By the way, it's on fire kind of brought you out the experience just as badly. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Yeah, um, but it's, it's one of those things that I think – is something that we should probably take another look at for sure. Well, it's also too, like I can imagine the challenge of, you know, if I, if there's a fire between me and the ventilation controls or the pressurization controls, I'm in a, I'm I'm dead. Like I'm in a, in a gameplay dead end by virtue of where I'm sitting in the ship. So I guess unless it wrapped around or something, uh, but yeah, I understand too. If, if you were to cut players off with barriers from, from certain areas, you it, might cut them off from certain controls that they would need to resolve the crisis. And in this case, because the ability to resolve fires is in an area that is very easy to cut off from the rest right. of the ship, it right. would make the game extremely difficult. Um, I'm, yeah, I, I, I think probably the the best middle ground solution would be to have that cutoff only occur when the fire has reached a certain level of magnitude. Ah, sure. But when the fire reaches that level of magnitude anyway, the ship will probably blow up, considering (laughs) that it's the hyperdrive room. uh, And there is some sensitive, volatile parts in there that will definitely explode on you. So um, I did not realize that. So fire, okay, okay. Oh, yeah. You don't want to let fires get out of control in the reactor room or the hyperdrive room. Um, It does seem like the little uh, ring, the viewing stations are kind of disposable. Yeah, you can lose... And that was an interesting thing is like you can lose one piece of the ring, um, but you can't lose two because once oh. you lose two parts of the the ship, the ship destabilizes. Um, 
And that's mostly because it would make no sense for you to have, you know, viewing room two and viewing room three disconnected from one and four. Right, right. How would you be able to move between the rooms that way? That would that would be logically inconsistent. So um, by the time the second room collapses, you're done for. You can also be in a viewing room when it depressurizes, which sucks you out the window, which is. Uh, Yes, it seems like. Yeah, you guys uh, recognize several different ways of killing an astronaut. Like that. There was a lot of research in astronaut murder. I mean, my search history was <laughs> was really like uncomfortable after a while. Like, how many ways can you kill a NASA astronaut? And the funny thing is, it's really like three major ways an astronaut's going to die in space: uh, depressurization, temperature, and radiation. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we had to work hard to find some more. <laughs> we got creative, though. Did you by any chance see a movie released on Netflix recently called uh, The Cloverfield Paradox? No, it's on my to-do list. Um, we we saw the the first couple of Cloverfield movies, so we're I, I am intending to watch that probably sometime next week. So unfortunately, I think it's pretty awful, but it is very much a uh, astronauts on a doomed ship trying to fix it kind of thing, and Absolutely. they do have one outrageous way to kill an astronaut which i've never seen before and i don't think the physics of it are correct but okay. uh, it's a super weird death so yeah i don't all want right. to spoil i'm looking forward to that that yeah. should be good uh all right let's um let's go ahead and, and talk some spoiler stuff so sure. if you if you have not played deep six and you're interested i would advise you to just go ahead and and uh you're done with the podcast uh, uh go ahead play it uh, i think it's well worth playing feel free to start on easy mode um, but the rest of this conversation between me and Ryan is going to be for people who have gotten through the storyline at least once. Uh, if that's not you and you don't want it spoiled for you, fast forward to the end. For everyone sticking around, and uh, I won't get too specific with spoilers, but just keep in mind this is a conversation for folks who have finished the storyline at least once. Um, I presume, and I don't want to know what they are, but is it correct that there are multiple endings? I mean, there's clearly a fork where I make a decision. Uh, are there you are, wanting? There are three okay. endings to the game. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Okay, three, because I understand how there would be two, and there's a third. Okay, um, there are three endings. Uh, one is very, very unique, um, and two are similar but with variations in tone. Okay. Okay. Good. Do you want me to like go into detail? Um, not. I, I kind of want to know because I, I I can I know I can, I can clearly go to the decision about what to do with Ursa and each of those is an ending. If I wanted to find the third ending, just give me a hint. Oh, uh, you uh, you do the final mission and you either succeed in that final mission or you fail in that final mission. Oh, oh, okay, that makes sense. And that right. will produce different outcomes to the story. Right. Okay. Um. What if I go to those places that have the little singularities? Since it's a permadeath game, and I guess I should have tried this on easy, I'm reluctant to say, hey, what happens if I go to a singularity? Oh, Uh, okay. Does that just kill me or should I check it out? You just die. No, no, no. That'll kill you. Don't do that. (laughs) So it's not not that that Astra Interstellar Solutions is hiding something from me. That's an honest, hey, don't go here. It's treacherous message. Yeah, although it'd be hilarious if I just put like some some game breaking rewards in there for players that just <laughs> I that's thing I'm gonna do one day just for fun is just throw random stuff in singularities and, and let players be rewarded. But no, don't do that. Where it says in bright red lights, you know, do not go here, you will die. I'm not messing around there. You right, probably right. will die. Yeah. Uh what if I jump if I hyper jump while my probe is still retrieving something? 
Ah, okay. So, um, if you jump while your probe is retrieving something, you leave your probe behind, and you'll be missing a probe. So do you have to buy a new one with certificates, or you just yep. never get a probe? Okay. No, nope, you got to buy a new one. Uh, so it just dismantles the upgrade, basically, on your ship. Yeah, and uh, probes also can get destroyed by creatures. And creatures, some creatures will actually target probes. They'll go out of their way to, to make sure your probe dies. Um, the problem with hyperspacing without a probe is I don't think we really spelled that out clearly enough. And we had a few players be like, I can't believe my probe died. I had no idea that would happen. And while I want to be snarky and be like, what do you think was going to happen when you left without your probe? <laughs> like, that's on you, pilot. Um, it's From a gameplay perspective, we should be doing a whole lot more to say, hey, are you sure your probe is still out there? You might want to wait till it comes back. I have definitely been in situations where I'm in the hyperdrive room ready to click on the, the uh, activate hyperdrive as soon as I hear the clunk of the probe arriving. We're like, I'm waiting on it to get yeah. back. Uh, <laughs> and it's just that one moment because there's creatures that are going to kill me or whatever. And I, I get that audio cue. Okay, and I know the probe is back. Now I can leave. And don't you love when you get the audio clue and you, and you click the button and it goes, I'm sorry, but this mission is too important to me to allow you to jeopardize it. I think we need to stay here a little bit longer. And you're like, so- ah, No! The, the no. way you guys play with, like, Ursa, and I love the shift that Ursa goes through. Uh, I love to – do you know the movie Moon? Yes. Moon I, is I, very, very – yeah. Like, the whole idea of being isolated on a space station. Right. Uh, and you got this AI, and, like, the AI's relationship with you is weird and forced, and you know it's weird and forced. Um, but you go along with the motions anyway. Yeah, it feels very Moon, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, and just also the you know the how games like or, or games how a movie like Moon plays with this expectation we have from two thousand and one about rogue AIs, uh, and and you guys are very much tuned into that ambiguity. I, I love how Ursa goes through that that sort of journey there. Uh, it reminds me like what if what if Glados could finally get along with Shell in the Portal games? <laughs> like what if they could make it work out between the two of them? So when um, we started making this game, and again this spoiler time, so I can get away with this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When we started making people. this game. I had one major thing, and it was, I want the AI to not be evil. Let's make a let's make a game about an AI that's not evil. Has anyone ever done that? <laughs> is there are there any games where the AI is actually not out to get you? Yeah, I think they're all like Shodan, pretty, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't until I like played Invisible Ink that I was like, oh hey, an AI that's inherently not evil. That's, oh, your your handler AI. In yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that that right. counts, I guess. But it was I. I just thought to myself, I I am sick of the trope of the evil AI, and I know that this is a time in history where we are legitimately, and it should legitimately be concerned about the possibility of rogue AI and the threat that AIs pose to humanity. But I just want to write a different story. Um, and uh, when players are saying, you know, let me guess, this is a story where Ursa is actually engineering your failure from the get go. I want to right. just chuckle and say, not this one. This is one that's going to be a story about can you be friends with something that has programming? And what does it take? You know, is your compassion limited to sentience? How do we define sentience? Um, uh, and, uh, and just kind of also is – if a machine is capable of feelings, does it have more value than a human life? And 
from a human's perspective, what does it say about you if you are willing to sacrifice your existence for a machine? What to do about the Ursa question? So I, I think you know, while we had a very limited amount of space and gameplay to really explore these ideas fully, um, and we kind of tossed the player into the narrative, you know, into the deep end, and and it's done in a way that is, it's definitely not a slow build. Um, I think that for for the game being what it is, I think it's done a pretty good job of it. Yeah, I mean, you basically at those points in the game, I was like, oh, these are. You know, some of the same issues that uh, Blade Runner explores, you know, yeah. Ridley Scott and Denise Villeneuve's remake. Like, that's it's that kind of subject matter, that sort of theme. Yeah. Um, what uh, what triggers free upgrades? Because I want them as often as I can get them. There's only one free upgrade. I was worried about that. All right. Do you always get it or you have to do something to get it? Nope. You always get it. It's always okay. mission three. And you either get a you either get a free thing that you need. Or if you already have the thing you need, you get a free anything you want. Right. Okay. And and that's basically our way of saying, hey, you need this thing. So either you've already got it by now, in which case, good for you. Have a free whatever you want. Or uh, you you definitely need this thing to continue in the game. So clearly you haven't figured out that you're supposed to buy it. So we'll just buy it for you. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Right, right. Uh is the number of missions because there there are obviously specific story beats that you hit, yep. and as you die and replay a few times, you'll start to recognize. Okay, this is that story beat. This is this one. Uh, is there a, a limited number of missions in the game? What determines when those story beats come? Uh, there are in the game a limited number of missions. Okay, so it's it's not a game you'll play forever. It's a game that has a very high difficulty curve, and then it you are rewarded by advancing the story. It's not like you have to find a certain thing to progress the story further. Right. Um, except for that one moment when you have to find a certain thing to progress the story right. further. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for the most part, it's uh, it's a game uh, that uh, you will get to the, the end game after a certain number of missions are completed successfully and then you will get to the super end game when you are able to find the thing that you are actually looking for, and you will have an easier time finding that thing you actually looking you're actually looking for, depending on your actions in the game. And I don't know how much more specific you would like me to go. No, no. Well, what's to stop me from just not going to that signal? Oh, I guess oh, I'm not going to be getting any upgrades or anything. No, you're not. Your mission is to find the signal. So, and I can't just randomly draw the game out. Yeah, yeah, because that is a mission specifically. I'm just I uh, when it, when you go back to base, like in a lot of the missions, you go back to base multiple times. Uh, am I correct that when you first go back to base, whatever you have queued up for purchase before the mission? That shows up when you return, or that doesn't show up till the end of the whole mission? Uh, so in order for you to get the thing that you ordered, you have to finish successfully a mission. Okay. Which means if you order a bunch of fuel rods, you go out, you do your mission, but you, you fail in the mission, those fuel rods won't have shown up yet. So you okay. now have to go back out there without those fuel rods, try again, do the mission the right way, get it completed, then those fuel rods will show up. Right, okay. And that's uh, challenging. That's tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What um, so what led to putting in these upgrade paths uh, mutually exclusive choices? Oh, um, yeah, controversial issue. I guess for me, it's 
I believe that um, I believe that you sh- the game is more fun if you don't have access to everything. I like to introduce player choice whenever possible. And when players are choosing not what upgrades they want their ship to have, but what upgrades, uh, what the order of the upgrades are going to be, it's less interesting. So I, I really do like exclusion. Um, I think that there's room for debate as to which upgrade paths are the superior ones. Uh-huh. Um, I've played the game for a considerable amount of time thinking that I was right, being like, well, obviously everyone's going to go for this path. And then just for a joke, switching to the other path and realizing, oh, actually, it's way more easy this way. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's there's a bit of conceit in that as a developer. As um, uh, Apparently, the game is... Uh, our, our balancing of those paths is was actually much more effective than I thought it would be. Um, I always feel like mutually exclusive decisions are way more interesting than I'll come back and get the other one later decisions. Oh, I'm, I'm relieved to hear that because I thought I was going to get called out for it. <laughs> no, 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 no. And it's also replay value as well, right? And there's this yeah. idea of, okay, well, next time I'm going to get the plus one jump so I can stay out longer. Uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I love that sort of thing in a, in a it game. It also makes sure that everyone's deep space experience is going to be a little bit different. Sure. sure. And when players say, well, obviously that's easy. Just keep jumping to another sector till you find whatever it is you're looking for. And you're like, oh, well, I only have one jump. Right, right. Um, it, it creates interesting stories between players as to, well, this part was easy for me, but hard for me here. How much do you get uh, people wanting an endless gameplay mode? Like, let me just see how long I can survive. Is that is that even a request you've gotten? Uh, that was something that we wanted to do as a Kickstarter reward. Uh, we ran a Kickstarter back in May. It was not successful. But if it was successful, one of our stretch goals would be to uh, to put in an endless mode. We haven't had any requests for an endless mode, but we have had requests for a harder difficulty level. Oh. And we were so shocked because um, we we see what the rates are of people actually completing the game by looking at the trophy unlocks. And the game is hard. We designed the game to be hard, and people are finding the game to be hard. Um, so when we here please make the game harder we have to oblige there's there's no way we're going to say no to that so we are in fact going to work on in a very quick coming update even harder mode okay which will be um again the same gameplay the same story we might go endless with it and do that at the same time but uh that is the one thing we we do want to fulfill is if you're finding the game to be too easy, you're crazy and challenge accepted. We already know some things that we can do to uh, to make things a lot more interesting and a lot more realistic. Uh, great. Well, Ryan, I've uh, really appreciated you talking to me about uh, Deep Six. It was it's one of those indie games that I just sort of booted up and uh, was completely grabbed by it. I'm enamored of what you guys have accomplished. Uh, I love the challenging things about it. Um, and yeah, so it, as far as the immediate work that's going on in Deep Space 6, uh, Deep Six, I keep calling it Deep Space, uh, <laughs> we're recording on February 18th. What sorts of things are you guys working on now uh, with it? Okay, uh, so right now we're just hammering out little bugs and issues that have mm-hmm. cropped up in the community, and we've been very, very responsive on that. We've put in 14 updates in the past six days now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just to, to toot you guys' horn, because you might be too uh, kind to do it, I was having a minor issue where I couldn't fill up things in my backpack. 
I posted on the Steam forum. Uh, Dennis asked for a saved file. I sent it to him. Within like a matter of hours, you guys had fixed it. So yeah. uh, you guys are being super responsive. I, I really, and I'm sure the community really appreciates that sort of responsiveness. We've got such great uh, fans right now. I mean, we've got 31 positive reviews and not a single negative thing said right now. Um, all the critical feedback, like the useful critical feedback, we take into consideration and we've made changes along the way, like including taking away permadeath for easy mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to continue to be taking that feedback uh, in for new gameplay mechanics. Um, people have requested multiplayer support. That's not going to happen for numerous reasons. <laughs> um, that's That's a little out of scope right now, but... Uh, there are things that are in the works right now, um, not the least of which is actually we want to do a mobile build. Uh, uh, sure. And we will be releasing Deep Six hopefully very soon for Android and for iOS. Um, we uh, are looking, we're investigating right now some localization. Uh, we're looking for a Spanish, French, German and Russian builds. But that's going to depend very much on sales on on this one. Uh, as far as new gameplay mechanics are concerned, we're looking at a harder mode. Um, we are interested in uh, possibly opening up, <coughs> opening up uh, uh, Steam Workshop and letting uh, oh. users tinker around a little bit with their own ideas for monsters, but that's something that's a work in progress. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do that easily with our current engine, the way it's set up. Uh, what else? Don't uh, forget to plug the scoring, the potential scoring. Oh, mode. yes, of course. Thank you. It's right there on my list. <laughs> that's just my own pet my own uh, pet request, right? High school <laughs> system. That is happening. That one is absolutely happening. Um, putting in some movement limitations for... Um, for severe fires and, and that sort of thing seems like a no-brainer. I'd like to put in a few new mission types as well. Uh, that's a luxury, but I think that's something that just builds in a little bit more variety and a little bit more replayability uh, into the game. Uh, if we hit a certain sales threshold, I'd also like to pursue uh, customizable avatars for Ursa. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, she would need a pair of them, I guess. So. Yeah, and... It would be also really fun and entertaining if you could make edits to Ursa's voice work. Um, I'd like to bring in alternative actors or actresses uh, for the role of Ursa and see how that can affect gameplay. Uh, but I don't want to go into that. That's all very aspirational, and it's all depending on how well okay. Deep Six does. Sure. Uh, now, uh, your previous game, Rogue State, is available yep. on Steam. Uh, is there anywhere, I know it was done for charity, but is Khan's Bureaucracy available anywhere if people wanted to look at your earlier work? Oh my gosh, yeah. Khan's uh, Bureaucracy, I think, is only available on one vendor, and that is Fireflower Games. Okay, spell uh, spell it for me, by the way. What am I saying when I say Khan's Bureaucracy? I'm- yeah, uh, C-O-N-S-P-I... Consp- uh, R-O- Oh my gosh, i got to write it out. So consp- <laughs> conspiracy? Yeah, it's like conspiracy. Oh, conspiracy and, and bureaucracy. I'm now ge- I finally got it right. Okay, right. Yeah, here you go. <laughs> C-O-N-S-P-I-R-O-C-R-A-C-Y. Conspiracy. It hosted on uh, Desura. Desura was the place to go for it, but then Desura went bankrupt. So uh, I think the only vendor left standing that's still hosting it is Fireflower Games. Okay. And I'm sure they would be thrilled to have somebody download Conspiracy. 
Um, again, it was my first game. If there are bugs or issues with it, um, I'm sorry. Uh, all of the revenue from it went to uh, went to uh, Foundation Fighting Blindness. Uh, with Deep Six, we've again gone to uh, revisiting a charity, and we're going to be donating some of the proceeds to a local charity here in upstate New York that helps uh, uh, mentoring opportunities for at-risk youth. Wonderful, wonderful, Ryan. Well, Ryan, I appreciate the conversation. I appreciate also uh, Deep Sixth, uh, and thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you very much, Tom. Take my love, take my land, take me where I cannot stand. I don't care, I'm still free. You can't take the sky from me. And yet another reminder that I really need to watch that Firefly Serenity thing one of these days. Uh, it's worth noting that in my review for Deep Sixth, which you can read at quarterto3.com, uh, one of the things that I, I said was that it's it's more story-based than a roguelike. Uh, and since then, the developers, uh, or Ryan's colleague, uh, Denise Comtesse, uh, has said on Steam that they're sold on adding in this endless mode. Uh, so they, they seem clearly, and based on what Ryan has certainly said, they they do seem like they're leaning towards uh, adding more roguelike elements uh, going forward with it. So uh, look for that in the near future. Speaking of the near future, come on back next week. I'll be joined by Jason McMaster and Nick Diamond uh, to talk about, you know, the usual. Tune in and find out what that is, and I'll see you guys then. Cheers. Let's have some music in here, Boiler. Sure thing. Yeah.